Welcome to Funny Because It's True, true stories told by funny people. I'm your host, Kevin McGeehan. The show is recorded live every other Tuesday at the Second City Hollywood in Los Angeles, California. Storytellers are either predetermined or chosen randomly on the night of the show, and this podcast is a mixed bag of some of my favorites. The theme of this episode is luck, stories of how unrelated events can sometimes lead to surprising results. Seth Whiteberg tells how an innocent request led to a bitter rivalry with legendary rap group Run DMC. Matthew Craig discusses how an old friend's random search for adult smoking paraphernalia led to a job at Saturday Night Live. And I recount how a 70-foot rogue wave saved me from a relationship with a woman who had me under 24-hour surveillance. So let's not dawdle. First up, Seth Whiteberg. I believe that everything happens for a reason, including the brief but ultimately tragic hip-hop feud I was involved in in college. Um, I went to Duke University, and on the last day of classes, there was always a a really big concert. And and on my sophomore year, I really wanted to meet the headliner, which was a band by the name of Guster. Um, Now, at the time, um, I was, um, to use a term that I think of affectionately, an an acapella nerd. And I was in the the pitchforks of Duke University. now, prior to being a collegiate acapella nerd, I was a high school acapella nerd in New England. And if you're an acapella nerd in New England, you're very familiar with a group from Tufts University called the Tufts Beelzebubs, which, which happens to be the group that two of the members of Guster were in. So I knew some of the same people as them. I actually knew one of their old roommates, figured we would have a lot to talk about. I liked their music. I really wanted to meet them. I also happened to know a lot of the, the students that were helping run the event. So I got backstage and got to meet Guster. And we're having a great talk, and and they were super nice. Uh, And I'm getting ready to head back to my seat when the opening act arrives. Um, It's like 20 minutes before the show. They show up super late. And um, you know how college events are when students are planning everything. It can be kind of an eclectic mix of performers. So the opening act uh, for Guster um, at Duke's last day of classes in 2001 uh, was hip-hop legends Run DMC. So... um, now, within the acapella spectrum of skills, there's one that I was particularly adept at, which is what's known as vocal percussion. Um, and the subset of vocal percussion that most people are familiar with from hip-hop is beatboxing. And I was a pretty good beatboxer. So I figured, oh my god, it hit me like in a flash. I'm backstage with Run DMC. I know how to beatbox. This has happened for a reason. Like, this is all lining up. And I convinced myself that what needed to happen then was I needed to go and explain to run DMC that I needed to come out on stage and beatbox with them. So I go to their dressing room. They're like rifling through all the stuff from their ride or all their food, whatever. And I, I stick my head in the room and I introduce myself and I tell them that I beatbox and wouldn't it be awesome if I came up on stage and you brought a student up and everyone would love it and that'd be great. And now uh, Reverend Run and DMC were both very nice, but the, the third member, Jam Master J, was not happy that I was there. He dismissed me out of hand, told me to, to leave right away, and I figured, okay, no harm, no foul. I tried, right? I go back to my seat, and I'm telling my friends about what happened, and they are all like, no, man, this has to happen. This was meant to be. You have to get up on stage and beatbox with Run DMC. Like, this is, this is like the perfect um, confluence of circumstances for you. So I'm like, you're right. I got to do this. So I get up from my seat and I go to the stage door, uh, like on the side of, um, of the stage right up front. And I know the guy at the door and I tell him what's going on. And he's like, yes, this has to happen. Go in there. So... He lets me in the wing, and I run right into Run DMC 
like 45 seconds before they're going to go on stage, and they see me coming. I get two words out, and Jam Master J just lights into me. Get the fuck out of here. What the fuck are you doing? You're just a punk-ass bitch. Get the fuck away from us. We're trying to get ready for our show. Fuck you, man. You know, like, I'm 20 years old. I'm like, okay, I'll get over this. Uh, I, 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 I leave. Surprisingly, no security anywhere uh, other than my douchebag friends at the door. Um, so I go back to my seat, and the show starts. Now, it's 2001. This is not the peak of Run DMC's career. And in front of 1,200 college students um, in 2001, it's a bunch of students who know that they should know a lot about Run DMC and really like Run DMC, but... But they don't really know that much about Run DMC, and they didn't really like Run DMC that much. So the show is kind of strained. There's, there's, the crowd's not really super into it. And you can tell that Run DMC is feeling that because all throughout the show, they keep being like doing that hip-hop thing of like, let me hear y'all scream! And we'd scream, and then they'd be like, that's not loud enough! And we'd scream again, and it just becomes exhausting, like having to validate Run DMC. Um, and you can tell that they're feeling like really insecure about the whole thing, right? And they should be, like, their, their group's sort of in decline, they're playing at a college, they're opening up for a band that has a bongo player instead of drums. Um, and, like, it gets so bad that at one point they actually stop the entire show and they're like, we're not playing one more note until we hear everybody scream at the top of your lungs. And we're just like exhausted by this point, not enjoying them anymore. And I'm thinking, man, you know what this show needs right now? What would be perfect right now is for them to show how much they 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 care about the audience by bringing someone from the Duke community up on stage to perform with them. This would be perfect. And right in that moment as the song ends, Jam Master Jay starts talking about, you know, before the show, there's this kid who came up to us, not once, but twice. And I'm like, holy shit, he's talking about me. This is it. This is my moment. This is supposed to happen. They are going to bring me up on stage. I'm going to perform with Run DMC. But he very quickly starts to fictionalize some of the events. He doesn't, he doesn't talk about me wanting to beatbox with him. He talks about that this punk ass kid wanted to battle him and, and, and freestyle battle him and thought he was so much better than, than Jam Master J speaking in the third person. And I'm like, whoa, 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 what's going on now? And it turns into him going into like a four minute freestyle rap all about what a huge, punk ass bitch this kid was talking about me the whole time and he's just eventually taking out like all of his aggression all of his anger all of his insecurity about everything that's going on in his life and this group at this point on me uh and and this audience and the audience completely reads what's going on they don't know that this actually happened necessarily but they can just tell that like this guy's angry and this show sucks and let's just get to guster and that's how the show ends now 18 months later, <laughs> Jam Master J is in a recording studio in Queens when a still unknown man bursts in, draws a gun, shoots, and kills Jam Master J. Now, I'm not saying that I had anything to do with that, <laughs> but everything happens for a reason. Thank you. Next up, Matthew Craig. Uh, this is a story uh, about luck playing in my life, um, and it's the story of how, and I'm sure you'll appreciate this all as people who are writers and spend a lot of time thinking about your craft, that I got hired 
to write for SNL because Jason Sudeikis needed a one-y. Uh, let, me, let me explain that <clears throat> I, uh, I, I, was, I was hired as a writer this year in March of 2011, and I will also share with you that I no longer write for them. Uh, all of this, uh, interestingly enough, the, the way this whole thing unfolded is, um, and it was an awesome experience. I, I should explain that quickly because a lot of people want to know what it was like, and it was just a whirlwind. It was, it was really crazy. And I also want to clarify at the top that I'm not trying to brag about this in any way. I, I tried for years to legitimately submit for the show. I wrote packets year after year and tried to write for them and went through the proper channels. And And this was, at this point, for a couple of reasons, was not even on my radar anymore. Uh, and, and that's what makes it so interesting. And, and here's what happened. is Basically, after years of writing packets and the like, I moved out here in 2007 and had been living out here for a while. We lived in Los Feliz, my wife and I, and we really liked it. And <clears throat> we had, in the fall of uh, 2009, and actually in the, in the summer of July, we moved over to Studio City. And, and when we moved to Studio City, I, I really have settled here. I really love California. I was born in the Midwest. I was raised in Dayton. I went to school in St. Louis. I spent years and years in Chicago and, and the Twin Cities. And then I came out here, and I was like, what the fuck? Why haven't I been here sooner? The fact that you can walk down the street and, like, pick a meal drives, makes me go, we are, What? You know, I feel like when you get to a certain age, when you're like 35 and older, there's things that you just don't, you don't expect that there's anything new on the planet. And for me, it was like persimmon. And <laughs> anyhow, the point is, I really like it out here. And, and I am kind of like a really big bear. And I just kind of, I'm, I'm, I love that you can go out and sit by pools all over the place. I, I like climbing to high points and, and seeing who has pools and then trying to get near them. <laughs> but the long and the short of it is, I, I liked it. We just moved to Studio City. We had gotten this two-bedroom apartment. My wife was three months pregnant. Uh, we had just signed a year-long lease, and we had moved into this place, and I get a phone call from Jason Sudeikis. Now, let me explain the background of Jason Sudeikis. Jason Sudeikis is uh, a year or two younger than I am, and uh, he came up through the Second City ranks uh, a couple of years behind me, and um, for a variety of reasons, and one a huge one being talent, uh, he's done remarkably well in this world. Uh, but we never really have worked together, performed together. I, I'm not friends with Jason. We are acquaintances. If anything, like, I've admired his work on TV, and he's admired his work when he's come to a theater, which is great. I mean, I performed at Second City, and I know that in his heart he wishes he had done more there, but he needed to go and make a shit ton of money. <laughs> that being said, uh, so I get a phone call from him, and he basically explains to me that having been on SNL for a number of years, he's at a point where sometimes SNL cast members are allowed to choose a handful of people who are then going to submit some writing, basically a sketch packet, and he guarantees it gets read. Basically, I put together a packet. I'm basically told that I'm hired. This is 2009. A cast member who was not going to be on the show, decides to come back for half a season, Daryl Hammond, and it affects how much money the show can allot. So I am no longer hired. And the job goes away, which is awesome, because I like it here. I like persimmon. So I was okay with it. It was actually this moment of like, wow, I had just moved here, and my wife was pregnant, and what would happen in New York, and it was crazy, and it would have been awesome, and I would have done it in a heartbeat, and don't get me wrong. But at the time, you know, you pick yourself up, and you're like, well, life happens for a reason. This is how it's going to go, right? So... Cut to, that, that, literally, let me explain this, too. When shit stops at SNL, it just stops. It was like, yeah, yeah, all of a sudden managers were calling me, people were calling me. 
I was a somebody. And then it was like, nope, it's not happening. And it was crazy. Uh, so anyhow, that's a side. That's a whole nother thing. Anyhow, so so jump now to it's this March, 2011. Two years have passed. A year and a half has has passed at this point. I, I do a two man show here with a buddy named Frank Cayetti, uh, who's remarkably talented and awesome. And it's called Frank and Matt. Anyhow, we're doing a show here. Just happen to be doing a show because we do a show weekly. Because we're doing a show here weekly, we happen to be in Hollywood, and Sadekis is in town doing reshoots. He's visiting with a mutual friend of ours who writes for a, a television show who gives him weed, but not a oney. So he's driving home to his hotel. He's staying over at the Hollywood Hotel, and as he's coming through here, he's, he's clearly, if you need to get weed paraphernalia late at night, like 10 o'clock, you go to Hollywood Boulevard. So he's driving down here, and he literally just says, pull over. To the taxi cab and gets out and happens to step out and sees that he's standing in front of Second City. And then looks in, at the marquee to see who's playing and he sees that it's Frank and I and he's like, oh. So he pays the cab guy and he comes up here and he sits right where Paul Leo Dietz is sitting and he comes in halfway through the show. We do the show and then three days later I'm just hired out of the blue. I get hired because he needed to get a oney to smoke weed and I'm, I didn't do anything to get it. <laughs> Nothing. Now, to sum it up real quick, I ended up going there. And when I went there, I did really well. I had five things. But the first thing is nobody tells you who you're going to talk to when you're there. Like, nobody tells you what you're going to do. And the very first thing I had to do was pitch an idea to Elton John, which was totally mind-boggling. So it was an awesome experience. But the long and the short of it is literally a week after I got hired there, Comcast bought them. Once Comcast bought them, their budget literally from week to week to week got cut and cut and cut until there was a point that I was kind of like, well... This is probably going to go away. This is probably going to go away. And I just kind of enjoyed it as an experience, and it was amazing. And so please find me in, in the world. It was the crazy moments. I mean, insane moments where you're standing this far away from the Foo Fighters, and nobody else gives a shit, which is part of the problem with that show, because nobody else, it's a free show in the middle of the afternoon, Foo Fighters, and it's me and the band and their kids. I'm holding their kids' hands, so they're not. <laughs> Anyhow, it was a great experience, but it comes to this moment where I'm driving home from, uh, from Second City one day, and I'm driving home, and it's literally June. So all of this happened in March, April, and May. I worked there, and June I get a phone call from my now manager who has picked me up because I got hired by SNL who tells me that I get let go. And so as I find out this from this phone call, I'm driving home, and I have that one of those moments where you just kind of like start to break your car. You know, like I'm on a Bluetooth, but it just kind of slow down because I'm like, I wasn't expecting this this quickly. I thought I'd have the summer to kind of walk around like like an asshole, you know, just kind of be like, yeah, yeah, it was fucking great. The point being is that I walk into my home, back into my home, the same Studio City apartment that I now know I'm going to move out of. And we're going to move to a new place that I'm also excited about. But I'm having this moment where I'm totally like drained and like feeling really terrible about it. And I'm thinking all this like, oh, this good luck, this good fortune and all of this stuff. And my daughter, who is now almost two years old, comes walking up to me and it all just went away. And I remembered again how much I love persimmon. Next up, me, Kevin McGeehan. Uh, sticking to the theme of dumb luck, uh, sometimes luck takes the weirdest forms and shapes. Um, for me, it took the place of a rogue wave. A rogue wave is one in every 3,000 waves that are two to three times the existing waves. Uh, in April of 2005, the Norwegian Dawn, a cruise ship from uh, New York to Miami, was hit by a rogue wave. And um, it was a very scary night. 
and um, we were in a storm for 36 hours, and the scuttlebutt behind it was that Donald Trump uh, had requested that one of the challenges on The Apprentice be uh, on a cruise ship, so they went to Norwegian, and Norwegian said, oh, we'll have our flagship, which is currently south, but we'll get them back to New York really quickly, which made us go through a storm that eh, maybe we shouldn't have gone through. So we were in this storm for 36 hours, up and down. It was like an old silent movie where if you saw the making of it, it was guys on the side just raising it up and down. And it was just uh, harrowing. And the only thing they could do for the passengers was to give them alcohol for free. And um, so people were either frightened or drunk. I was the latter uh, for the entire night. And it was... um, what had happened earlier in the night, we had an improv show that night up in the Spinnaker Lounge on Deck 12. And um, so we're right in the front of the ship. And at one point, we go up this wave. And we can feel ourselves going up and we're at a, going at a weird angle. And then suddenly we get halfway through. And just because of buoyancy, now we fall down. And the ship goes down. And we go under a little bit and then back up. And you can see the water hitting deck 12, which is eight stories up. And um, it was pretty scary. The rogue wave in question, the one that uh, really did some damage, uh, happened at 6 a.m. And I was in the back of the ship, so I didn't feel it. And I was drunk asleep. Uh, but what the wave did was it hit the very front of the ship. Um, have you ever seen Poseidon Adventure? That's what got Poseidon Adventure. Um so the wave hit us in the front. So it was basically like it popped us in the nose really hard. And the ship had to limp into South Carolina for repairs. And it caused a lot of stuff. And it, it, it changed the story on a lot of things. Here's what. A few months earlier, I had gotten the job on the Norwegian Dawn. And I was very excited. It was the first Second City cast that was being put on there. And we were given this dream gig of you do two shows a week. And that's it. The rest of your time is yours to do with as you pleased. And I led the life of an eccentric millionaire where I had a 13-story mansion that I let people stay in every week. And it was fantastic. But there's also a lot of hours in the day. So after a while, I started to refer to it as prison with kick-ass amenities. And... With that comes some boredom. As you're trying, uh, it's a Groundhog Week. So every week it was the exact same itinerary. You see the same things every week. It became more exciting what has the best internet and who has a Kmart. Uh, became the most exciting parts of the whole thing. This led to loneliness, desperation, and curiosity. Because one day this woman started taking an interest in me, this beautiful 22-year-old Bulgarian woman uh, who spoke four languages, absolutely just stunning, and she really took a shine to me. The assistant cruise director, who I considered a big old douchebag, said to me, I wouldn't embark on a relationship with her. You better be careful. That's a bad idea because of her job. Like I said, I thought he was a douchebag, so I blew off his warning, and I went forth with this relationship. Ah, from the mouths of douchebags. He was absolutely right. The thing about her job was she worked surveillance. There were 1,100 cameras positioned around the ship, and her job was to monitor all 1,100 of those cameras. I dated someone briefly who watched everything I did. Day one was good. 
Day one started fine. We met up for a drink. We talked. We laughed. We told each other about ourselves. She told me all the things she already knew about me because she had read my file. Um, <laughs> the next night, we met up for a drink again. We, uh, we talked about our days. She told me all the things. Uh, she asked me questions about what I had done that day, and she confessed to me later, I watched you do all those things that day. Uh, the next day, um, I get a call right as I walk into my room because she had just seen me walk into my room. Uh, she called me that, uh, it started to get to me a little bit and then we were docked in New York and, uh, we spent the day together and it was a, a lovely day. And the one thing is that we never really, we didn't seal the deal. If you get my eyebrow induced insinuation, um, and I was always curious as to why. We barely even kissed, but she would always say, there's something I can't. There's something I, I, I just can't tell you. And she wouldn't tell me until we went to New York and we were walking around the streets. And she said, I have to do something. I have to make a phone call that's not going to go very well. Here's what had happened. Here was her secret of why we could never go forward. She had gotten married a few months earlier, but left him 10 minutes before their wedding was supposed to start, and now she was dealing with the aftermath of that. And as she put it, he was being so unfair about the whole thing. So as I'm walking on the streets of New York with her, she is screaming in Bulgarian and in English at this guy, and they're going back and forth, and I am just holding her purse <laughs> as this is happening. Things start getting weirder and weirder, and I just don't want to be a part of this anymore. Uh, we meet up that day. I say, I don't think we can uh, go forward anymore. I, 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 this has been fun. Uh, and she gets really upset with me. And she says, no, we're going to stay together. <laughs> and, I, and I said, well, I, I, I really think we should stop. No, we're going to stay together. Okay, we'll stay together. So we stayed together. And I met up with her that night. And um, she said something that uh, kind, of, uh, kind of rubbed me the wrong way, so I left. And said, I'm going back to my room. Instead of going right back to my room, I went by the crew bar to buy some water. And uh, made my way back, talked to a few people along the way, then got back to my room. The second I walked into my room, the phone rang. I picked it up. Oh, you're just going back to your room? I just saw you go to the crew bar. Why'd you go to the crew bar? I said, fine, we're done. I, I got to be done with this. She made a veiled threat. And then we hung up. Now I have to deal with the aftermath of this girlfriend. A few days later, the seas are really rocky, and I get drunk on Norwegian's dime because they're trying to make sure that everyone is appeased on the ship, and the frightening situation of this horrible storm as we're trying to get back to Donald Trump's apprentice. And I meet up with another woman, and she and I had a flirtation going, and we decided to have an adult liaison in her room. I go back to her room, we have our adult liaison, and then she asked me to leave around 4 a.m. So I agreed I would leave. And then I had to do the walk of shame, the one that I've never done before, the one that's monitored. <laughs> and as I'm walking back to my room, just really kind of freaked out, knowing that she's watching me leave another woman's room, I think, oh, my God, I wish something would just happen just to make sure that I don't have to deal with this. This is embarrassing. Oh, two hours later, we were hit by a rogue wave, and that changed the story completely. 
So luck takes very weird forms sometimes. Because that rogue wave, I lucked out, man. I lucked out. That's it. That's our show. Thanks to our storytellers, Seth Whiteberg and Matthew Craig. Special thanks to Josh Callahan, Mark Warzeka, The Second City Hollywood, and the Comedy Podcast Network for producing the show. If you would ever like to see the live show, Funny Because It's True, is every other Tuesday at 10 p.m. at the Second City Hollywood, located on beautiful and mildly scary Hollywood Boulevard. The next show is January 17th, and the theme that night will be prom. Find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash funny because it's true. And come out, sign up. Maybe you'll get chosen to tell a true story on stage, and from there, get chosen to be on the podcast. My name is Kevin McGann. Thanks for listening. For more funny stuff for your eyes and ears, go to ComedyPodcastNetwork.com.